Amen. Thanks, Karen. That's a long, long reading. Thanks for doing that for us. So one of the things we've done through our Galatians series is to go out into other passages of Scripture to see how they support this beautiful gospel of grace that Paul wrote about, not just to the Galatians, but in fact to his entire library. And so I thought as we wrap up our Galatians series today, we'd go back one more time outside of Scripture. I know it's Advent, but I just, it's just one more teaching on Galatians, and so I thought we'd get it done. I didn't want to drag it into another year. We started Galatians in 16, and, and I thought we'd just wrap it up now so we're not all the way into 18 as well. But it's been a great series, at least for me. It's been transformative in my own life. I hope it's been the same for you. And so I chose this very famous passage from Hebrews, this let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because I think this is one of those texts that is often turned into a legal lesson instead of a gospel lesson. It's a text that we've heard read as though it were supporting the law instead of revealing grace, understood as a transaction instead of a response, imperative instead of indicative. But remember, Paul, so carefully throughout his letter to the Galatians and his entire library, went to lengths to explain the fundamental truth as revealed by the Christ event. So the Christ event, remember, is the advent, what we're celebrating now, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. That's the entire Christ event and everything that means. So that truth that that revealed is that God comes to us, God loves us, and God saves us because that is who God is, not because of anything we have done or anything we could do. The biblical narrative, when understood in the context of its entire picture, does not tell us we need to transact with God. It does not tell us we need to be better, we need to do better, if he is going to love us, if he is going to save us, if he is going to help us. And when it is read that way, it is a different gospel. And I would say it's not even a gospel, because gospel means good news. And if we have to transact with the uncreated, if we have to at some level appease God, we're all in a big trouble. And listen, I know if we're sitting in church, and I go over this and over this, but I, I hope everyone understands. I don't believe that people that are sitting in church actually think anyone needs to appease God for salvation. I understand that. Okay, I've met very few people that think you need to appease God for salvation. And it's usually in different cultures, in different places. So I don't think that's what's going on. What happens, though, is while we're comfortable with grace that saves us, we're incredibly uncomfortable that grace is the beginning, the, the middle, and the end of our journey. And we turn right back to what human, humanity wants, which is to transact with God. And I think that's what messes everything up. It's what messes up church, it messes up religion, it messes up relationships, it messes up life because we turn away from this beautiful gospel. Paul always, he said in the Corinthians, go deeper. And somehow, someway, we thought going deeper was moving away from grace back into transactionalism, back into legalism. But here's the thing. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So let's talk about that. The Christ event that reveals this grace did happen at a certain time and space in our perspective and in our world. But long before this universe was ever even put together, it happened. We're built on that event. And so that has to inform our entire reading of Scripture. Everything we think the cross meant, you know, for by grace we saved and God so loved the world, and while we were yet sinners, everything we think about that event, we have to understand nothing was even made before that event. 
So we have to read scripture, I believe, from that framework. The law will never save us or transform us, no matter how hardwired we seem to be for the law. Only grace saves us, and only grace changes our lives forever. And so I think it's vital that we always talk about this, and we remember this, especially when we approach passages in Scripture like this, which so easily want to draw us back to legalism and the way we can understand it and be taught it. Because at first read, this certainly seems imperative, doesn't it? I mean, come on. It certainly seems that way. In reading through all of 11, I had Karen read 11 purposely, as you'll see in a second. This seems as though it's saying, get your sneakers on, do something, work harder, run longer. Everyone knows the only way to build endurance is to run, so let's get running. It seems that's what Paul's saying. Let's clean up our rack, let's get rid of those encumbrances. Throw away the favorite sin and be like the spiritual heroes of old. And if we can do that, and if we can live like that, and if we can act like that, then we're going to be rewarded with God's love. He's going to offer us a place in his eternal kingdom, and we're going to be made one of the witnesses of the next generations. But maybe that's not what the writer of Hebrews ever intended us to get out of this very, very famous passage. Maybe what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do is get us to embrace what the rest of Scripture is trying to get us to embrace, grace. Consider the very cloud of witnesses the writer offers. They are given us as an example, no doubt, but maybe not the kind of example we think of when we first read the list. Yes, they did great things. Yes, they ran the race with endurance well, but not because they were great people, not because they were prodigies without equal or born with extraordinary talents, and certainly not because they appeased God better than the other person. See, these folks were just like us. And I think this is why the writer of Hebrews gives us this list. Sometimes they were wonderful. Sometimes not so much. Sometimes they were filled with confidence, and sometimes they were filled with doubt. Sometimes they were models of purity, and sometimes... Not so much. Sometimes they were filled with massive potential for good and other times with massive potential for evil. In a word, this cloud of witnesses is one of the great proofs of the reality of grace. And I think it's one of the great encouragements in all of Scripture, as we'll see. I think this writer read Galatians. Maybe he was from Galatia. Maybe he's one of the people that got this letter and actually not just received it physically, but actually got what Paul was saying and then ended up writing this amazing book called Hebrews. Because let's just consider a few of these witnesses from the list the writer gives us. So Noah made the list. Now we've studied Noah, so we know that Noah wasn't a good person because the Noah story in the Bible is introduced, God looked around the world and everyone, everyone, and that word has to be read to include Noah, had gone their own way and were inherently dark and evil. Noah found grace. That's what happened with Noah. He wasn't special. He found grace. And here's the thing. That grace was open to everybody. God did not say Noah. Some people so much struggle with the story of Noah when I don't think they should. Everyone was welcome to build a boat. God didn't say, Noah, go in hiding and build it privately because you're the only one I'm saving. No, he's the only one that did it. He's the only one that found grace. In fact, if you study ancient, ancient stories, nearly every religion has a story about some catastrophic event that took place way, way back, usually a flood. 
And all those stories have a theme, a consistent theme, which is there is a spirit warning people it's coming. That God said, it's coming. Build an ark. And Noah did. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. Then, God saves his family through the flood. And what does he proceed to do? Well, let's see. He gets so wasted, he gets naked in front of his entire family and passes out. Then his family notices, because it's really hard not to notice someone naked and drunk in front of you. But because they noticed, he curses his son for noticing. Nice guy Noah is. Who else made the list? Abraham. So Abraham was filled with so much doubt at times, he slept with his maid to try to make the promise of God that Sarah would have a baby. I would love, Abraham sleeping with your maid is going to have Sarah have a baby how, exactly? And then Sarah, she laughed in God's face. So she's another of this brilliant cloud of witnesses. Let's see, Moses, even after seeing the burning bush, had such a lack of confidence that God would be with him that he requested Aaron as his mouthpiece. And as Moses got older, serious anger issues. Serious anger issues. Jacob's in there. He deceived his own father to get his blessings. Who else is in there? Rahab. She's a prostitute. Samson. We all know Samson's multiple issues, right? Then Jephthah. Jephthah is fascinating because he comes right out of the Game of Thrones. Listen to Jephthah's story. Ready? He was the bastard son of Gilead, through a prostitute, and was so hated by his half-brothers he was driven from home and country. That is a storyline in the Game of Thrones. That's made this list. And then there's David. Now, here's the thing about David. Not just because I was named after him, but he was an amazing, at times, person. He wrote the greatest psalms ever written. He was an incredible musician, probably a pretty good dancer because he was so good his wife got jealous one day. But would you want David as a friend? No, let's be honest. He'd steal your wife, and then he'd kill you to cover it up. Like, and this is a guy God did not let build a temple because he was a man of war. Think about that. So is this starting to, starting to make sense of maybe what the writer of Hebrews is getting at? This cloud of witnesses is there to tell us that even we can run this race set before us with endurance because we're just like them. It's not there to say, try to be like them and run well and make us feel horrible when we're doing all those silly things. Hopefully no one here gets drunk and gets naked in front of their family, but we do a lot of those other things. And we're filled with doubt and we're filled with anger at times and we have no faith at times and we struggle at times and we give up on each other and on God. But this cloud of witnesses says, because we're like them, we can run well too. No matter how difficult and painful and long this race may be, we can do it because it's grace doing it in us and for us, just as grace was doing it in and for them. Consider Gideon. Now, he's another writer. He's another witness the writer mentions by name. Let's just read a portion of Gideon's story. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, Oh, Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? I've said that. Who hasn't said that in their life? Maybe moments of profound faith you don't say that, but other times you say that when life is collapsing on you. I've said it about my friend's life. 
Lord, what, if you're with us, why? Why is, is my friend having cancer that is so bad? Why? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. There is Gideon. And what does God say? The Lord looked at him and said, well, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. What's his strength? His doubting? His anger? His disappointment with God? I suggest yes. That's his strength because, see, God says this. Surely I will be with you. Gideon didn't need to be special. He didn't need to be great. He didn't need to have it all figured out. He didn't need to be a perfect Christian. He needed to go in God's strength because God was doing it for him. And God did it for him. Grace. A scholar commenting on this passage in Hebrews wrote, Legalism says to run the race with endurance in order to become the thing I should be. See, that's the Christianity I was brought up with. The gospel says that what enables me to run the race with endurance is that I've already been made the thing I should be. We don't run the race to become something. We can run the race because we are something. We are redeemed like David, Gideon, and the rest. Because of this, we can run with Christ's endurance, needing none of our own. I love that. How freeing, how encouraging, how helpful, how supportive. This, this is what the entire letter of Galatians has been about. Remember? Our job is not to grow fruit. Our job is to let fruit grow in us. Our job is to trust God's love for us so much that then we are open to him transforming us. Our job is to feed the good wolf like the Cherokee parable that we've used throughout our series. And I think this is why the writer of the Hebrews added this most important point to his passage. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's all about what Jesus did, which makes us able to live like him. Remember when Paul was closing his letter to Galatians? He wrote, walk in line with the Spirit. It's the same thing this writer is saying. Don't lose sight of Christ. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection is not just our example. It is our power to live into that example. And these encumbrances and sins, which so easily entangle us, are simply those things which take our eyes off Christ. And here's the frightening thing for us Christians that are so into this. Anything that leads us to believe there is a better way than grace, anything, no matter how good it might seem, no matter how good the people are whose mouths or pens it comes out of, anything that takes our eyes off Christ and leads us to think there's a better way than grace keeps us from running with endurance because it makes us put our faith somewhere else. There's the problem. And that's ultimately what legalism is. We worship ourselves. Because we say, like it's easy to read that list and think, oh yeah, if I was great like that. No, they did that because God was doing it in and through them. Not because they were great. The best real life example I know that offers a meaningful metaphor for this mystery is the Hoyt story. I've told this story at church before, but it's worth retelling, especially in light of Galatians. Because I think maybe this is the perfect metaphor 
for what Paul was writing about. All right? I'm going to use the words from a guy named Stephen Terpstra. He said this in one of his sermons he gave, and I just thought he did a better job. Why just try to break it down? It's easier to say, hey, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this guy. So Rick, Rick is in the wheelchair. He was born in 1962 to Dick and Judy Hoyt. That's Dick's dad that's pushing the wheelchair. Many of you might know him. If you go to the Boston Marathon, you've seen that in the past, you've seen them. So what happened was when Rick was born, he lost oxygen during birth. And as a result, he was diagnosed as a spastic quadri quadriplegic with cerebral palsy with no chance of him recovering. So when he became a teenager, someone figured out at that point, you know, technology was just happening, that he got a computer which enabled him to communicate finally. And one day at school, he learned about a five-mile run to raise money for another child who had disability. So he asked his dad if he would run the race with him. And his dad said, yeah, sure. So they ran together. His father pushed Rick's wheelchair, you know, for those 5K. The night after the race, his dad remembers, this is a quote from his dad, Rick told us he just didn't feel handicapped when we were competing. And that started a lifetime in which they have literally run hundreds and hundreds of races, including marathons. I've seen them at the Boston Marathon. Ironman competitions. They've raced up mountains. And once, they ran 3,735 miles across America. When his father runs, Rick is in a wheelchair that his dad is pushing. When his father cycles, Rick is in a special chair attached to the front of the bike. And when his father swims, Rick is in a small boat being pulled by his dad. This is a beautiful image of what God is doing in and with and for us. You see, we really are no stronger than Rick in this race we call life. But as Stephen Terpster said, we have a Father who loves us, a Savior who died for us, and to Spirit empowering us. And because of them, we can run our race each and every day with confidence and hope. Now, I'm going to play a video. But I'm going to challenge us this morning when I play this video, which I have played in church before. You're going to watch this video, and you can't help but get emotional. And, and if you're like me, you'll cry. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to be watching this video, and because they set it to a song. Well, actually, it's not set to a song. This is, they were involved in the making of this video. It's, and it's uh, Mercy Me, uh, you know, Mercy Me, which is an emotional song anyway. And we're going to get emotional because it is amazingly beautiful what the Father does. And if you're a father or a mother, you know that, boy, it would be incredible to, to have to do that for our child, right? That's great, and I don't want to stop that. But here's what I'm going to challenge, two things. One, when you watch that and you start to get that emotion, I want you to channel that towards God in worship of what God is doing for us. And number two, and here's the hard one. This is the hard one. It's hard for me, but I'm telling you, if we're ever going to really live into this gospel of grace, this is what we have to do. Don't watch this father and want to be him. And don't watch Rick and wish he was something different. Watch Rick and see ourselves, please. The gospel of grace is a gospel of descent. And while we are told from the time we are little, we need to be great. And we need to be Dick Hoyt. No, we are Rick Hoyt. And it 
it's okay. Because until we accept and are recoit, we will not reach out to grace. And I don't care what our theology is. I don't care what prayer you've ever said. If it is not grace, it is not saving us. I want to challenge you because I tried that this week and it is so freeing. Dad, when we were running, I felt free. That's our life in God. We can be free. We can be completely and utterly transformed if we just let God I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. To my knees will I fall, will I sing hallelujah, will I be able to speak at all, I can only imagine, I can only imagine, I can only imagine, when that day comes, and I find myself, Standing in the sun, I can only imagine when all I would do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine, yeah. I can only imagine. To my knees will 
can only imagine when all I would do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine.